Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. We're here to give you the facts so you can form your own opinion. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, we've got an early year update on election legislation proposed across the country that we've been tracking with staff writer Ethan Rice. Hey, Ethan. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to the podcast. This is your first time on the show, right? Yes, it is. Very exciting. For all of our first time guests, we like to ask them their origin story, their Ballotpedia origin story. So could you share with our listeners a little bit about how you came to work here and what exactly you do? Yeah. So I initially joined Ballotpedia in in September of 2020, and I joined as a, a temporary staff writer my role then was just sort of helping the marquee team out in the run-up to the, the 2020 general election. So basically just filling in, adding some extra capacity there for, for the team. And then after a while, I kind of became a, a jack-of-all-trades, which was really great, actually, because I was able to participate in a, a lot of different types of projects. And it was a really great learning experience and helped me gain a lot of experience working on all manner of different topics. But my first experience with legislation tracking, which is what we're talking about today, was with a project called Disclosure Digest. And that focused on nonprofit donor disclosure and privacy policy. I found that I really enjoyed like that type of work. You know, a lot of people probably think that it's it's dry and boring stuff, but it, it's actually really fascinating. And so not only do you learn sort of more about the legislative process, but the, there's also so much to learn about about the different legal subject areas that we cover. Yeah, I mentioned this earlier when we talked earlier in the week that I think you would have made a great ballot measure staff writer because all we do is translate legalese. So <laughs> very much in the weeds of legislation. Speaking of legalese, we've invited you on today to discuss our election legislation tracking. As our listeners are likely well aware of, elections, how they're conducted and handled has become an increasingly contentious dimension of our political system over the last few years. We've seen that political attention translate to more and more election-related legislation at the state level. Tracking that legislation, as you mentioned, is your bread and butter, Ethan. So would you mind explaining how this sort of legislation aims to change our electoral system? Sure. I, I think first you have to define electoral systems. And so so broadly speaking, these, these systems are the methods through which elections are conducted. And that seems obvious, but there's actually so many ways legislation can impact the way an election is held. Many people probably think of voter ID laws or, or something like absentee ballot legislation and policy when they think about election-related legislation. But when you back up and consider how many different factors are at play, even in local-level elections, you realize that it's a lot broader policy area. For instance, we have some bills that regulate the salary and benefits of poll workers, others that amend election dates, filing deadlines, and still others that, that focus on things like voting machinery and, and how it's used. So it's really a much broader topic area than just than just voting. But you know, to recap, these electoral systems and, and the legislation that regulates it, that can refer to the method by which elections are conducted or the method by which votes are tallied to determine the outcome. So you have legislation sometimes on, on different sorts of systems. Systems, like plurality systems, majority systems, the way districts are set up, and so on and so forth. But again, these are these are pretty broad categories with a lot of individual facets. Got it. So the basic goal of any election-related legislation is simply to change how elections currently work in the state. It seems a little early in the year to be talking about legislation, but lawmakers are starting to convene for the year. And with that comes new proposed legislation. We've seen activity pick up this last week, haven't we, Ethan? Yes, we absolutely have. In our most recent report, which covered just the first week of the year, we recorded 55 new bills. And that represents an over 800% increase as compared to the last few weeks 
of 2022. We're currently tracking a total of 366 bills, but we expect that to go up to probably 2,000 bills by mid-February. Um, so in other words, we, we, we've definitely seen a huge increase in the number of bills acted on in the first quarter of the year, but we expect a whole lot more in the coming weeks. And these are just bills related to elections, not bills overall, just to clarify for That's our correct. listeners. So what do you mean by acted on? So when we say acted on, we basically mean progressing through a state legislature. So the general process is a bill is introduced, and if it's successful, it'll be approved by both chambers of the state legislature, and then in most cases, signed into law by the governor of, of that particular state. But there's a lot of other things that can happen to a bill between these points, and, and we track all of these actions. Bills can be assigned to committees. Uh, these committees have hearings on those bills. And sometimes there are amendments made to the original bill. Uh, sometimes the bill is passed by the legislature, but then vetoed by the governor. Um, so there's a lot of things going on, and, and we track each one of these actions every step of the way. Just a plug for the way we've done it, our system standardizes all of the stages of the bill. So some states have nuances in how they're getting their bills through the legislative process. And the way we track it, we've standardized it across the state. So it's really a great system. Is this uptick in action something that we're going to see throughout the year in the coming weeks or just a blip? The rate of new bills that we're seeing now is about what we expected based on our analysis of the over 2,500 bills taken up last year in 2022. And when we broke down the total number of 2022 bills, by when they were introduced, we saw that about 80% of them had been introduced in the first six weeks of the year. So even though we're tracking a few hundred bills, we expect there to be a whole lot more. Got it. So of the 366 overall bills we're tracking so far this year, have any of them moved forward beyond being introduced? The, the bulk of them haven't. The majority of them are still in the introductory phase. Um, so they've been introduced into a legislative chamber. Some may have already had committee hearings, but they haven't progressed past that first chamber. In some states like Texas, which which did not have a legislative session in 2022, they allow legislators to pre-file legislation for the next session. And so we saw quite a few bills filed um, in those states that allow pre-filing before the end of the year. But many other states are, are just beginning their legislative sessions in the first couple weeks of January. So there's a lot of new bills coming in that, that haven't really been acted on in any way beyond just being introduced. However, we have a handful that have moved a little further on in legislative status. Uh, there's seven, I think, that we're tracking now that have passed one chamber of the state legislature and one that has passed both chambers. We generally refer to these bills as like carryover bills. So they're bills that weren't introduced in this current legislative session, but they remain active from previous sessions and they could still potentially be enacted. Got it. And is there anything interesting or noteworthy about these specific bills? There was a bill that passed both chambers, and that's South Carolina SO133, which it authorizes the election commission and the director of the election commission to, to oversee elections. It establishes in-person early voting, um, among other things. There's a lot of provisions in that bill. It was, it was passed by the legislature last June, but not signed by the governor. And these kind of bills are kind of tricky because although it's been passed by the legislature, if it doesn't move beyond that, if it doesn't get that, that gubernatorial signature, then for all practical purposes, it's dead. And there's another interesting bill that sort of shows how broad this topic area is, like I mentioned earlier, and that's New Jersey Assembly Bill 3915. And that requires the state to pay for costs to conduct a new election if the state is at fault for errors during the initial election. And so this bill was approved by the New Jersey Assembly in, in June of last year. And it's still active in the New Jersey Senate, which may or may not decide to pass it this year. But that bill is a, a good example of not only you know, how many different ways that this legislation affects elections. 
And do we have data on like the partisan divide in terms of who is sponsoring these election bills? We do. But, you know, due to the, the sheer volume of bills that we have coming in right now, there can be a lot of fluctuation in that data. But I can tell you where we stand right now. As of this week, Democrats are sponsoring a majority of the bills that have been introduced so far, about 55% of them. Republicans have sponsored about 41%. And then about 3% have no listed sponsor or they were sponsored by members of other parties. And that actually brings up another piece of information our tracking system provides, which is partisan composition of a state's government, breaking down state by state information based on, on whether the state has a Republican or Democrat trifecta, meaning one party controls the legislature in the governor's office, or if it has a divided government in which in which no party has that control. But looking at our latest data on that, bills introduced in Democratic trifecta states. So again, this is where Democrats control the governor's office and both chambers of the state legislature. Those bills account for about 41% of the total bills we're tracking. And then bills in Republican trifectas account for about 53%. And in divided governments, at this point, they only make up the last 6% of the total number of bills we're tracking right now. But again, this is likely to change over time. If we look back at our data from 2022, we can see that the percentage sort of equaled out over time. So Republican and Democratic trifectas and divided governments each accounted for about a third of, of, of the total number of bills. And how about the divide among states? Are the bills that have been introduced thus far concentrated in any given state or is it kind of just spread randomly across the country? Actually, our uh, our home state of Texas has a, a sizable head start. On the other 49 states, there's been 107 bills introduced so far in the Texas legislature. And the rest are kind of spread out across the country. But there's there's a bit more activity in states like South Carolina and New Jersey and, and New York, especially New York last year had the largest number of bills overall. All, about 400 bills introduced in 2022. So we expect that number to increase as well. And do you have any idea why Texas would have so many introduced as compared to other states? Yeah. So like I, I mentioned earlier, some states allow lawmakers to file bills before the official start of a, a legislative session. And, and Texas is one of those states. So just because Texas has introduced a large number of bills at this point, doesn't necessarily mean that other states won't introduce more bills later on. Some states' legislative sessions haven't even begun yet, so the percentage of bills filed by each state is, is definitely going to change as we get further into the year. Before I let you go, Ethan, uh, Ballotpedia developed a tool that makes it really easy for our listeners to follow election legislation happening all over the country. It's kind of a mouthful to say, but our election administration legislation tracker is what we developed last year. We, we launched it in July, I believe, 2022. So could you describe for our listeners what it does and how it works? Sure. So like we talked about, uh, we can count on these state election laws to keep changing and for them to be for there to be a lot of new legislative activity. And we had 269 enacted bills last year and we could potentially have even more this year. So what we wanted to do is, is provide a way for people to get a big picture sort of view of what's going on in this policy area and make it as easy as possible for them to keep up with the latest developments and to track legislation as it progresses through these state legislatures. So this is what the legislation tracker does. We provide daily updates on bills that we're tracking, and you know we add new bills pretty much every day. We also summarize the full text of the bills into easy-to-digest summaries, provide other contextual data like bills by partisan sponsorship, trifecta status, etc. You can search for a specific bill, or you can look at the data overall that we have, 
or you can compare this year's developments with last year's. There's so many different features and just loads of information packed in there. And like I mentioned earlier, we track bills on a wide range of subjects, mail-in voting, early voting policies, election oversight, post-election procedures, voter registration, eligibility. Those are just a few of, of, of the many subject category areas that we, that we track election legislation in. And so this tool allows people to get a sense of what's happening overall, or they can look at what's happening in their state. And do we have a newsletter that summarizes all of our election tracking that our listeners could sign up for? We do. We have the election-related um, legislation digest you can sign up for on-site. We'll be sure to link to both the tracking tool and the newsletter in our show notes. I want to say thank you to Ethan for coming on and breaking down election legislation across the country. Hopefully we can have you back soon. Yes, thank you very much. Hey everyone, this is Jeff Palais, Ballopedia's Editor-in-Chief. Want to stay informed on the latest political news and analysis? Ballopedia's newsletters are here to help. We keep an eye on federal, state, and local politics and policies so you don't have to, bringing you in-depth election reporting from the presidential race down to school board elections. To learn more about our free newsletters, check out the link in our show notes. Welcome back to FunNote Facts with Paul Rader. How are you today? That's good to hear, assuming you said something positive. If you said something negative, I'm sorry to hear that. But you know what will make you feel better? Trivia. I know that's what has gotten me over this sickness that has been nagging me for the past week and a half. Well, I guess prescription medicine helps too. Today is about incumbent win rates, and I'm doing something different from the usual for the trivia question today. More vocabulary-based than numbers-based, which is, what is the term for the disconnect between the low public opinion of Congress and their high rates of re-election? So time and time again, we've seen elected officials often have an incumbency advantage when running for re-election. Incumbents have the name recognition, the already existent fundraising infrastructure, etc. That comes with already being in the office they are running for, and it gives them a big leg up on their competition in those regards. And it's not uncommon to see a type of office, particularly the U.S. House, have upwards of 80 or even 90 percent of incumbents running for re-election win their races. In 2022, we only saw 25 of 386 incumbents, or 6.5%, who ran for re-election lose, and it was almost an even number of Republicans and Democrats. But there were several years in this past decade that had even lower rates of incumbency losses, particularly in 2016 when only 3% of incumbents unsuccessfully ran for re-election. And it's a similar story with the U.S. Senate, though there are by default far fewer incumbents to account for there. But even with the incumbency advantage, 2022 was a bit unusual for the U.S. Senate in that all 28 members who ran for re-election won. Compare that with 2020, where five incumbents lost, but that's still over 80% of incumbents winning re-election that year. So even with the different electoral rules between the two chambers, term lengths, size of electorates, etc., the incumbency advantage is still a huge factor. But make no mistake, while I've just been talking about Congress so far, these incumbency win rates extend to the state government level as well, though term limits on various offices inevitably affect which incumbents can even run for re-election. In 2022, we only saw 179 incumbents lose, or 3.9%, and that was the lowest this past decade. The highest percentage of incumbents that lost in the past 10 years was only 6.8% in 2018. For state executives, we do see some higher rates of incumbency losses than for state legislatures, but there's also a much smaller number of those executive offices, so the numbers get skewed a bit. For example, in 2020, quote, only, unquote, 79.6% of incumbents that ran for re-election won, 
But then again, in 2022, 27 of 28 governors won re-election, and so did 15 of 16 secretaries of state. The lone loss was Indiana Republican Holly Sullivan in the state convention, though Republicans still retained the seat. But when we do see an uptick in incumbent losses, you tend to see it in midterms, at least for Congress and state legislatures. Midterms tend to be unfavorable to the sitting president's party, and we see it for those offices. In 2018, which was Donald Trump's midterm, 32 of 34 U.S. House and 255 of 318 state legislative incumbents that lost were Republicans. And in 2010, which was Barack Obama's midterm, 54 of 58 U.S. House and 481 of 495 state legislative incumbents that lost were Democrats. Now, enough about incumbents. We're running out of time. Here's the trivia question again. What is the term for the disconnect between the low public opinion of Congress and their high rates of re-election? That term is the Fenno Paradox. The late political scientist Richard Fenno was the first to note this divide between public opinion and congressional incumbent win rates back in the 1970s. The pithy way to put it would be, everybody hates Congress but loves their congressperson. That's it for me. More trivia coming at you next week, but for now, the floor once again belongs to Victoria Rose. Thanks, Paul. That's all for this week's episode of On the Ballot. Thanks again to Ethan for coming on the show today. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, if you have any questions, comments, or love for Ballotpedia, feel free to send it to us at ontheballot at ballotpedia.org or on Twitter at Ballotpedia. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening. 